All right, so whatever you want. Okay. Welcome to the readout loud, which is a new. Well, I should have scripted this to be honest. Punch it a little bit more too. Punch it. <laughs> you. Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the premiere of. I'll just do it over. God, this is a disaster. Okay. Oh my. <laughs> so those were outtakes from the very first episode of this podcast, which we recorded way back in March 2018. We have now reached our 100th episode, and this time Damien has actually scripted the introduction to his podcast. Yeah, Damien, punch it. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I am Damien Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. And I am Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stats Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, February 27th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The coronavirus outbreak is rattling the markets. We'll talk about the unsavory business of picking stocks amid fears of a pandemic. Next, we'll interview Todd Mercer. He's a patient from Michigan with a rare cancer about why he wants to enroll in a clinical trial and what it's been like to get turned away from five studies so far. Then we'll be joined by the producer of the show, Hyacinth Epinado, to talk about how the podcast gets made and to check in on the stories we talked about on the first episode of the show. And last but not least, we'll channel our internal sports radio show hosts and answer some questions from listeners who called in to leave us voicemails. Before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Damien, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. That's right. So at the risk of sounding too self-promotional, a Stat Plus subscription gives exclusive access to news and analysis that quite often moves biopharma stocks. You get profiles of the personalities and power brokers shaping the industry, and we explain healthcare policy emerging from DC while reporting on Silicon Valley tech breakthroughs disrupting healthcare. I can attest what Damien says is all true. Stat Plus really does all of that. So you can subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thank you for being a Read Out Loud listener, you can enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Well, this virus has been a colossal contributor to a slowdown in the global economy. It simply doesn't lend itself to goods that are working. You've got Clorox, Zoom Video, and Teladoc on reality, Gilead on hope. That's about it. Chuck in Tennessee. That was Jim Cramer on CNBC's Mad Money in a recent segment uh, recommending stock picks as the coronavirus spreads. This sounds morbid, but to his credit, he prefaced by saying he doesn't want to profit on the deadly outbreak, but that we need to acknowledge the reality of the impact that the virus is having. And it is having an impact. Stock markets across the globe plummeted this week as more cases of coronavirus infection spread beyond China. Through Wednesday, the S&P 500 was down 6%. And investors are growing ever more fearful that the virus will cause a massive disruption in global trade and slow economic growth. But of course, some stocks are up. And perhaps this is the sort of stock picks for the end of civilization segment. But let's talk about two of those because they fall squarely in this podcast wheelhouse. Those would be Moderna Therapeutics and Gilead Sciences. So amidst that global stock meltdown we were just describing, Moderna is up more than 50% over the past week, while Gilead is up about 12%. So why exactly are Moderna and Gilead performing so well? And are these gains justified? 
So for all the the fear and panic out there about coronavirus, Moderna and Gilead are both, to their credit, trying to rapidly develop new medicines. Moderna is working on a vaccine candidate that will uh, very soon start early safety testing in, in sort of record time, but would still be, it's very much worth noting, at least a year or more away from practical use. And then Gilead has an antiviral medicine that's meant to treat people who are already infected. And that drug is already in clinical trials of infected people, uh, and it will roll into even larger ones in the coming months. Yeah. And so the question of like why these stock prices are up is a good one. And I I asked Brian Scorney, he's the biotech analyst at Baird, to explain to me sort of what's going on here. And he kind of said to me that, you know, when the market is down, Traders will react by looking for stocks with potential upside exposure to what is dragging down everything else. So in biotech, that is Gilead and Moderna. And this is not limited to biotech. Uh, Zoom Communications, which makes video and teleconferencing systems, has a stock that is Zooming, one might say. And (laughs) that kind of makes sense because if people can't travel for work or they're forced to work from home uh, because of the coronavirus... Right. So history has proven that medicines used to treat viral outbreaks are commercially thankless propositions. They're not sustained profit centers for biopharma companies. So if you think of the Ebola vaccine, for example, uh, that Merck managed to get to approval, that's not something that you know, Merck is touting on its on its quarterly earnings calls as a commercial endeavor. So Moderna and Gilead would be unable to charge, you know, pharma-like prices for their medicines, assuming that they work and assuming that they're approved. And if the outbreak goes away, of course, so does any and all demand for those products. So any investment in them becomes virtually a sunk cost. But there's a counter argument too, right? You know, people might point to Tamiflu, which is the medicine used to treat the flu, as an example of a product that has sustained billion dollar sales. So that's true, Rebecca, and it is a good point. But I think it also is worth noting that Tamiflu is a pill, right? It's easily stored and stockpiled. You know, you can keep a supply of Tamiflu in your medicine cabinet. Gilead's coronavirus treatment, if we want to stick with that example, requires an intravenous infusion over five to 10 days, right? That's hardly practical for widespread use. So with the recent stock moves this week, Moderna has added about $4 billion in market value, while Gilead has added about $14 billion in market value. So considering all the caveats just stated, does this mean that these gains aren't justified and and investors are misinformed or maybe kind of dumb? Well, I would definitely say yes on the first part, you know, definitely. You know, are investors dumb? I guess I would just say that maybe they're just being like Jim Cramer, right? They're looking for something positive in a sea of negativity. One thing that's worth mentioning, I think, is at least in the cases of Moderna and Gilead, the outsized stock reaction doesn't seem to be the result of the companies themselves being overpromotional. Listening to, you know, earnings calls and reading press releases from both companies, they have made clear that they don't look at these endeavors as great commercial opportunities. They look at it as, you know, doing their part in society because the coronavirus outbreak is obviously so serious. So it would solely fall upon the investors for bidding up these stocks, not necessarily the executives out there making promises they can't possibly keep. Next up, we're going to interview a patient with cancer who has been having a hell of a time trying to enroll in a clinical trial. I met Todd Mercer a few weeks back at an event in San Francisco put on by Colontown. That's the colorectal cancer patient group. Todd lives in Michigan, and he works in the defense industry. Just over two years ago, at age 50, Todd was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer. It's cancer of the appendix. 
The tumor caused his appendix to burst, meaning his cancer was effectively stage four at diagnosis. His cancer has since spread to his liver and lungs. So like many patients, Todd wanted to enroll in a clinical trial. And it's hard enough for any cancer patient to get into a study. Only about one-seventh of adult cancer patients who are eligible to enroll in clinical trials actually sign up. But it's even harder for a patient with a rare cancer like Todd. So since Todd started looking for a trial in November 2018, He's been turned down from five studies. Now he's trying to get into a sixth. He joins us now to talk about his experience. Todd, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So Todd, tell us what kinds of trials you're looking at and and why you want to enroll in one. Originally, um, I looked at trials that were new, exciting, that seemed to have some science behind them that might be promising. Lately, though, I've done some genetic testing that's revealed some um, information that is leading me towards trials that are designed for the particular blockades or the phenotypes that my genetic testing has introduced. So I'm actually being more strategic about my trial hunt. And Todd, why is it important to you to enroll in a clinical trial? Well, for me, it's hope. And it's a little bit of hope for others as well. If I look at the data, I can see the trajectory of where, you know, my disease is headed with standard of care. You know, I'll be lucky to see five years and almost won't see 10 years. So there are only a few things that I can do directly to affect the outcome. And, you know, that's understanding my diagnosis, understanding my cancer, um, become an advocate for myself. And then, you know, the third thing is is look out at what's on the horizon, what other new drugs and new treatments are out there that are helping people. So there can, of course, be sound medical and scientific reasons why certain patients aren't allowed to enroll in a clinical trial. You know, the goal of these trials, after all, is scientific research, you know, to evaluate an experimental treatment as rigorously as possible. But at the same time, there's a growing line of thought that certain exclusion criteria are overly restrictive, especially when so many trials uh, go unfilled. So, Todd, from your vantage point as a patient, how do you think these concerns should be balanced? For me, the tumor origination was a big one. A lot of trials are designed around particular tumors, and that's how they go for FDA approval. Like, And so they're very careful about which type of tumors they let into the trial because it won't do them any good. In my case, uh, an orphan disease like appendiceal cancer is often referred to. There's not enough patients out there for them to go get an FDA approval for an appendiceal drug. So that was my number one obstacle. The number two for me, and this probably affects more people, is something called measurable disease. That's where your disease has to form in such a way that they can do a particular measurement to say how large your cancer is to begin with, and then how much the treatment affects it by a percentage. If you don't have measurable disease, many trials won't take you because then they can't get that But there's another factor called evaluable disease, which means it can still be evaluated. So some trials will use that characteristic. And so for me, I have to find an evaluable trial because so far my cancer hasn't been measurable. And then I'd say the third biggest is exposure. If you've already been exposed to a drug that's in the trial, many trials will exclude you from being in that trial. They want virgin candidates that have never been exposed to those particular drugs before so that they know that it's the drug that's affecting the outcome. And is that something you've experienced personally based on treatment protocols you've tried so far? 
Yes, because of my particular situation with uh, orphan disease, my oncologist has been open to trying some drugs off-label, meaning we'll do a trial of one. And so I did try an immunotherapy drug in that situation. And then once I did that, it didn't work. But then that now prevents me from most trials that have that particular drug in it. So as we mentioned, that somewhat bleak statistic before, this is not a unique situation in terms of patients getting access to trials. So I was curious, what are you hearing from fellow patients about why they're getting rejected and and how they feel about it? So particularly, some people get turned down as they get sicker and sicker and their biomarkers, their blood work comes back with higher enzymes or out of tolerance blood work. So they're not allowed into the trials as they're too sick. So we try to advocate that don't wait until the very end to try trials. Try them while you're still healthy enough to test the medicine. And then for a lot of people, location, costs, the time it takes, so it's time away from work. The trial will usually pay for the drugs, but it won't pay for the travel to get there a lot of times or the doctor exams. So if you don't have good insurance, those costs would become out-of-pocket costs. And then location, you know, I'm lucky I'm healthy enough to travel right now, but a lot of people aren't either financially or health-wise able to travel to some of these trial locations. You know, Tom, when we think about this, kind of think about the sound medical and scientific reasons why, you know, certain patients aren't allowed to enroll in a clinical trial. You know, the goal of that research, after all, is to evaluate an experimental treatment as rigorously as possible. But at the same time, there's a growing line of thought that certain exclusion criteria are overly restrictive, you know, especially when so many trials go unfit. So from your vantage point as a patient, how do you think these concerns should be balanced? You're right. Things are restrictive. I mean, cost, location. I try to look at it a little bit differently. The fact is there are a lot of trials out there and a lot of patients, but the trials don't necessarily always publish what their target is. What science directed them to try that combination of drugs or develop that new drug? What are they trying to determine? That needs to be a required piece of information in all trials. And then correspondingly, the patients and the doctors, they need to be educated on the value of genetic testing. No patient should ever be diagnosed with cancer without getting genetic testing. And that way you learn what the particular characteristics of your tumor are. And if you have that information and the trial is making that information available, and you find out that you have that blockade or that mutation, then you're going to be more desirous of getting to that trial. So it'll incentivize the patients and the doctors to seek out those trials. And then if those trials know that there is a population of patients out there with those particular characteristics that they're looking for, then then they're incentivized to reach out to those doctors and those patients to find them to make those matching. And Really, there just needs to be a platform that matches the patients to the trials and the trials to the patients. So as we mentioned earlier, you're now trying to get into a sixth trial. Tell us where things stand there. So far, it's encouraging. It has been delayed, though. There are two drugs that are my highest blockades, and this particular trial has those two drugs in it. I just so happened to be flying back from San Francisco, and I sat down next to the trial director for the trial that I wanted to get into. So <laughs> I was able to strike up a conversation, find out you know, where it was with his particular institution, if there were openings or not. And the problem is no slots have been opened. So I was getting sicker. So I couldn't wait 
for the slot to open. So I'm now recycling a previous treatment that I was on last year to see if it'll have some effectiveness just to get me through until potentially a slot opens up. Well, Todd, thanks for joining us. And please, of course, keep us updated when you get word on that trial, because we're rooting for you. Thank you very much. I absolutely will. Is it Shrelly? Shrelly. Shrelly. I feel like I've heard Shrekelly more than I've heard. Shrelly. I think that's wrong. I think the Shrelly is wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just yeah. saying it's definitely Shrelly. That was an outtake from the inaugural episode of this very podcast recorded way back in 2018. And we still don't know how to pronounce Martin's last name. But this being the 100th episode, we figured it was as good a time as any to revisit what we talked about on the first one and see just how embarrassed we should be. And joining us to go behind the curtain of how this podcast is made is someone whose name listeners will recognize, but whose voice is new to the show. It is our producer, Hyacinth Emanado. Hyacinth, welcome to the podcast you produce. Hello, happy 100th. So first of all, congratulations, everyone, on our 100th episode. It's a remarkable achievement. Um, so Hyacinth, I think people who listen to podcasts understand that they uh, generally have producers, but tell us what producers actually do. All right. So, yeah, I help you guys plan the podcast. We have a planning meeting every Wednesday to to talk about what goes into the show. And then on Thursday mornings, we record. And then afterwards, I pretty much spend the entire day editing the podcast, taking out those like puffs and ums. And then we have the final show. Oh, the dreaded ums, the you knows, the weird hesitations. That must be a big part of your job, getting rid of all that. That is the bane of my existence, yes. So important question for you, Hyacinth. Tell us who among us has the best podcast voice. Uh-oh. Do we really want to go there? <laughs> we do. Well, I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> clearly, clearly, Hyacinth is struggling here. We love her to death, and so we won't make her answer that question. All right, so let's get back to uh, let's get back to talking about the premiere episode of the Read Out Loud. The big news of that moment was Martin Shakreli. How am I, uh, I? I still can't pronounce it. Was Martin getting sentenced to seven years in federal prison for defrauding investors in a hedge fund? Now, none of us had any particular hot takes on that matter, but there was one thing that didn't age very well. On the one hand, you would think that there's some contingent of people that just wants him to go away. And if he's locked up, he can't be on Twitter, one assumes. Um, and thus, maybe this whole thing will be put to bed. But the other Right. So that was wrong, uh, at least thematically. So Shkreli continued to run a blog using prison email. And then, of course, as we learned from The Wall Street Journal over the summer, he continued actually running his company despite incarceration by using a cell phone smuggled into his prison. So moving on later that episode, we also talked about the perils of tracking private biotech companies, which aren't required to be transparent about just what it is they're doing. So the example we talked about was Unum Therapeutics. That's a cancer-focused startup that was then preparing to go public. Right. So the company had put out quite a few press releases touting the promise of its treatment for lymphoma. But what it hadn't mentioned is that two patients had died from toxic side effects and that the FDA had put one of its trials on hold. So, Adam, you used Unum to illustrate the phenomenon of, you know, buzzy private startups that lose their luster when they prepare to go public. Has anything changed in the last two years? The quick answer, Damien, is no. Nothing has changed. And I will say that Unum today trades around 70 cents per share. So uh, sorry about that, Bruce Booth. You can't win them all. So then we devoted quite a bit of time in that first episode to a boom in the personal genomics business. At that point, companies selling at-home genetic tests had raised more venture money in the preceding 14 months than they did in the entire six years prior. Here's a clip from that conversation. 
People love consumer genomics right now. The business is a shiny new toy that people want to play with. But then beyond kind of the flash and, and glitz here, there are real questions about the business model. How do you get consumers to buy in long term? And how do you make sure that the data you're collecting is not a commodity? So, Rebecca, cutting to the present. Did we get answers to those questions? We sure did. And we actually got these answers quite recently. There have been pretty well-publicized job cuts and sales declines at two of the uh, leading companies in the industry. That's Ancestry and, and 23andMe. But uh, Kristen Brown at Bloomberg uh, just put out a really good story showing that it goes beyond those two industry giants and that broadly the consumer DNA industry is is struggling and in really having a hard time staying afloat and and being a profitable or or successful business. So I think the questions we saw, the red flags we saw uh, back in 2018 turned out to uh, be prescient. So the main takeaways 100 episodes later are that I was wrong and Rebecca was right. And I think the other takeaway is the outtakes in our cold open hopefully established is that we need lots of editing. So Hyacinth, thank you. So we should probably end this discussion with a question to Hyacinth. How have we as podcast hosts evolved over 100 episodes? We have definitely gotten better mics. So you guys sound great. <laughs> that is brutal. I mean, that's you're you're you are you're you're harsh. Yeah, you basically just said like, well, now the pig has lipstick. <laughs> No, I think you guys have created so so much good content over these past two years. And I think our listeners really have been responding to that. And there's definitely been less editing over the years. I was just listening to the very, very first episode of this podcast. It was 55 minutes of recording for an 18 minute show. Now it's like 30 minutes of recording for like a 25 minute show. So, you know, there's a lot less to cut there. We've gotten better. Group hug. <laughs> So while we're being self-indulgent, in the lead up to this episode, we invited listeners to leave us a voicemail with any questions they might have. A bunch of you were kind enough to do so, so let's get to as many of them as we have time for. My name's David Ishii. I'm a biohacker out of Mississippi. My question is, if you guys could have a genetically engineered pet, what kind of genetic modifications would you want your pet to have? Ooh, that's a good one. So we should note that David Ishi is working on glow-in-the-dark dogs with the goal of convincing breeders that editing should be used for more practical purposes. And I have to say, I think the like answer I would go with is to rid them of genetic diseases, which can be very sad and shorten lives of, of dogs. So I love my dog, Bo, but if I was to genetically modify him, I would want him to be able to go to the bathroom on his own at night and in the morning, preferably using the toilet. This is like a really bummer answer. I've had pets pretty much my whole life and I have pets now. And like bittersweet aspect of that is when you adopt an animal, you love it and you enter into a contract where you pretty much guarantee that you will outlive it. And so if we could genetically modify animals to live longer, I think that would be lovely because burying a loved pet is very unpleasant. Wow, that was so sad, Damien. I'm sorry. <laughs> So Tim Enke's written in with a suggestion rather than a question. He suggests a, quote, gossip section where you pick up a gossip that is rumoring around in the scene and give your opinion on it, end quote. By the way, that was Alyssa Ambrose, our senior producer, pitching in. 
to help with this episode. Ooh, so I like this idea. I think we've already done a few sort of gossip heavy segments. A few come to mind were uh, an Instagram post from the musician Grimes, as well as uh, who Lady Gaga is uh, currently dating. Uh, that's an executive uh, affiliated with Sean Parker's Cancer Immunotherapy Institute. And I think we should note again that our executive producer, Rick Burke, really likes Billie Eilish. <laughs> so I love gossip like most petty people, and I like it from my like media brands that I consume. But one thing I would know is that it often sounds a lot better in principle than it comes through in practice. Like one of the great purveyors of gossip in the 21st century was a website called Gawker. And if you followed that story, you will note that it was sued out of existence uh, in the course of pursuing its remit to publish excellent gossip. So I, I try to keep that in mind when I have the urge to to maybe air out some rumors. Maybe we can bring that back to biotech, Damien, by noting that Gawker was sued out of existence in a lawsuit that was funded by Peter Thiel, who at various times has invested in biotech companies. Hi, my name is Nick Hill. I write a healthcare analysis and comedy newsletter called Out of Pocket. My question is, should the U.S. be doing more quality-adjusted life year studies, qualities, and tie more of our re reimbursement to said studies? Are there pros and cons to that kind of system? Uh, what are your thoughts? So just to give a little context on this, the quality adjusted life year is sort of a metric to measure how someone's experience of life is changed by a particular condition. And the higher the cost per quality, the less cost effective a drug is. And this metric has been sort of very controversial uh, over the years. But to answer Nikhil's question, Yes, I do think that there should be more of these. It seems like, you know, we should have more data, more ways to, you know, kind of figure out whether a drug is actually improving uh, someone's experience of life. I would also note there that most drug companies, they are not fans of the quality analysis. Their argument is that, you know, how do you sort of measure the cost in financial terms of a human life? And qualities are generally used by groups like ICER, to render drugs that, you know, basically to render decisions on drugs saying that they're not cost effective. Um, but I do agree with you, Rebecca, that like it would be great if we could incentivize companies to develop drugs and to do those kinds of analyses that show, you know, that you are um, creating value. Yeah, I, I agree as well. I think the argument that things like quality amount to putting a dollar amount on human life is kind of silly because... Everything. I mean, the pricing of a drug is in many ways putting a dollar amount on human life. Like we can all get over that concept as icky as it seems. And I understand all of the protests about quality itself as a metric, both from drug companies and, and in many cases from from patient groups. But what I appreciate about it and about things like it is that it's at least an attempt to quantify this. So instead of fighting about philosophical things, people can fight it out over numbers. So everyone who hates quality, I would encourage to develop some other metric and then we can fight about which one um, actually reflects reality. And that seems more like progress to me than just castigating one another with strong terms. Oh, hi, guys. I just wanted to say congrats on the 100th episode. Uh, it's a really great podcast. Um, just a note on the hosts, you know, Damien and Rebecca, you guys are stellar, really amazing. But that guy, Adam, you know, he just really doesn't seem to get biotech. Maybe you could get somebody with a little more experience. Just one listener's opinion. Um, this is Meg Terrell, by the way. Thank you guys so much for all the hard work, you know, except for Adam, obviously. Okay, bye. <laughs> oh, Meg. That's Meg Terrell from CNBC, my good friend. Thanks for calling in, Meg. <laughs> hey, this is Josiah Zayner from Oakland, California. And 
I'm calling with the question, is a meatball a fruit or a vegetable? So this calls back to 2011 when there was a whole brouhaha about whether Congress had declared pizza a vegetable. So I think if pizza is a vegetable, then a meatball can be too. I'm, I'm struggling to <laughs> come up with anything to say. I would guess it just depends on whether you've crispered that meatball or not. Hey. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> That does it for our 100th episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether we should do another call-in show. You can do that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week when we start on our next 100 episodes. Can I start over? Of course. Okay. <laughs> they call me 10 take Rick. So anyway. So anyway. <laughs>